Thanks everybody for coming out on a Friday afternoon and I'm very excited about how many people are here. That's fantastic. Um, my name's Charles Creel uh, and I'm also really excited about our panel today. Uh, we've been talking about what these two f fine folks do uh, all morning and it's just terrific work. Um, Jacqueline Harding is with Tomorrow's Child and she's going to be presenting uh, the latest research that she's been doing. And David Kleeman is with Play Collective, and he too is going to be presenting the latest research that he does. And this is all about insight, and insight into uh, children and the way that they consume media. Um, David's going to start, and I think we'll just get right in. Okay. I'm going to start by presenting my, my, my sole... Uh, qualification for talking about uh, psychophysiology work. I was the test subject in our office when we uh, recently installed our psychophysiology capabilities. I work for Play Collective. It's a research strategy and business development company in New York. We work worldwide. Our head of our global head of research actually is based in Western France. Uh, we have offices in, in New York and Washington. And we work in a, for a wide variety of clients. And the, the way I define what we do is pretty much anything surrounding children and families, play and learning. So if you take those two circles and look for the intersections, it can be almost anything in that. And uh, as a result, uh, psychophysiology testing and this kind of uh, biometrics testing is really brand new. We, we quite literally have added it to our repertoire just in the last six to eight weeks. We are working under the guidance and, and assistance of a professor from the University of Missouri, actually from the journalism school. So a lot of his work in psychophysiology has been around reactions to news and to uh, uh, you know, the, the things that, that people are seeing uh, through the media regarding current events. Um, but he also has done a good bit of work around things like advertising and, and that, and, and he's, uh, he's become our chief play scientist. Uh, we, we all play at our office. I, uh, our CEO is the chief play officer, he's the chief play scientist, and I'm our play evangelist, which means most of my time is spent doing things like this, going around and talking about our work, but also about others' work and about what we know about children and children in play. And uh, it's important then for me to start by saying that we have actually decided not for the moment to do psychophysiology work with children. That, that as you can see, the kind of work that we're doing, we're actually wiring people up and, and we're um, able to, to test through this wiring uh, everything from galvanic skin response, sweat uh, responses, to muscle motion that actually can give insight into um, sort of true responses, very quick insight into true responses to emotion. Is that smile that you see on the face of the person who's uh, being tested truly a, a happy smile or is it more of a nervous or, um, you know, just a, just gassed sometimes? Um, we're doing a, a little bit of eye tracking as well, heart rate. Um, and, and I think we've just decided for a number of reasons that I'll get into um, that we don't want to do that with children quite yet. Um, and if we do ultimately ever decide to do it with children, it will only be because we can get some true insight into things that will benefit their learning or their play. We do not want to get into the business ever of making them want hamburgers, making them want toys by you know getting deep into their psyches and, and figuring out uh, how to push the, the want button. Um, 
The kind of wiring that you see there is able to give us, as I say, a, a, a truer reading of emotion in multiple directions. So we can see within you know, milliseconds how people are responding to content, how they're responding to formats, um, and whether it's, it's a, a happy response or an anxious response or a sad response. We can tell that from, from some of the muscle tracking. Um, I think I said at the beginning, but I'll emphasize here, this is not my area of expertise. I've been consulting since I was asked to do this yesterday with um, our staff back in, in New York, so I'm, I'm sort of parroting what they say, but if I get anything completely wrong, please uh, be forgiving. Um, right now, the clients that we're working with mostly are, are around... Uh, are around advertising, but what we're testing is not again that the and it's with adults. What we're testing is not the the buy response. What we're looking at is we know that advertising has had to become a much more precise uh, science in this case. You need in a, a cluttered environment such as we have now, you need instant engagement. You you know, you need to know that that what you're doing is going to grab the the audience right away. You need to grab their attention and find and have nothing that might distract them from it. You need to, to really carefully track their emotional response to it, how they're feeling about the, what they're seeing. And you need message salience, so choosing the right audience and also clarity of the message. Um, and so what we're looking at much more often now is things like the difference in, differences in formal features. Is high definition different from standard definition? Do they have a preference of what device they receive uh, messages on? Um, if you have gestural interfaces, is one kind of interface more effective in, in bringing them through the content than the other? I think that this will inform a lot of the work that we do with children over the long, the long haul, of, of seeing what's most effective with different devices, of seeing how the, the, um, uh, the affordances of a particular device affect the, how the message is received. But that's the work that, that we're doing right now in this area of, of psychophysiology. One of the, you know, I said I'd get in a little bit to the reasons why, why we're not doing it with kids. Any psychophysiological or psychological research and manipulation requires great care, and I think that's something that all of us are, are going to agree on. Just in the last days, if you've been following the, the articles about what's going on with Facebook, the idea that they uh, adjusted people's Facebook feeds in order to try to change their emotions. They were feeding them either happier or, or less happy stories from their or, uh, posts from their friends in order to see if they then would post happier or less happy, happy things. They're under a good bit of fire already from groups like the, the uh, uh, Electronic Privacy Information Council and, and groups like that. This is covert kinds of research that people are not happy with being manipulated around. Um, we've heard here at this conference this year, but also over the past several years, about in-app purchasing and children and the kind of manipulation that you find within an app. How far into a game do you require? Do you uh, give kids the, the option or the necessity to make a purchase in order to go on with the game? How far do you let them read in a, an e-book before you ask them if they want to buy the next title. This is the kind of thing that, that is really troubling our industry right now and really up for, for great debate. And so we want to make sure that we stand well clear of that for, for the time being. Um, we do, whenever we work with kids in any kind of deeper sense, um, we, are, we always either work with a research institution, an academic institution. Our CEO comes out of the Annenberg, uh, USC Annenberg School, having studied children in media. She knows how to work in an academic environment. So whenever we do this kind of work, we either work with an academic institution under their IRB, under their um, 
right to, to do certain kinds of experiments with, with children and young people, or we hold ourselves to similar standards. As we put together the research proposal, we make sure that, that we are operating at a, a level that uh, would pass an academic IRB. The other reason we're not doing it is, to our mind, the questions that are surrounding children and families, media and play right now, are not necessarily at the kind of micro level. The biggest questions are not necessarily at the kind of micro level that, uh, we're, that uh, we're using, at least, psychophysiological research for, but we find them that they're more at a macro level. How are families engaging together around play and learning? What kind of behaviors within the household, out in the community, are we seeing among families? How do the mechanics or affordances of, the, of different platforms affect play and learning? And I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. What is each platform or device good at? What, what is it not good at? And then how are kids, you know, again, as we've heard here so often this last two days, how are kids engaging with multiple devices, either together or separately? If you saw the second screen session yesterday, the, the, the ways that people are building for second screen use or for simultaneous multi-screen use that's not designed to be second screen working together. So I want to show you something that we've been working on. Um, this is a very, very rough version of it. It's actually much more elegant than this in, in its real form. But we've been talking, we talk a lot in our office about the, uh, the play matrix. Um, I, I sometimes call it uh, if I'm talking to education audiences in particular, the rubrics cube, because it's all the different rubrics that uh, you have to work with in order to, uh, to develop media or play for children. When I first got in this business, it was a very simple matter. Um, I, I started out in public broadcasting in the U.S., and really what we were looking at was a very one-dimensional thing. Uh, do we have any kids programming? Then it became, do we have preschool programming and programming for older kids? Then it became, are we appealing to different audiences and different needs and different, you know, understanding that kids have, have different uh, needs, motivations, interests, abilities. So we, programming started diversifying. Then you started getting multiple platforms and you had to think about uh, what platform you were sending things out in. This now is a much more... Um, what we really need is about a 16-sided Rubik's Cube to, to really reflect it because there are so many things that you have to think about as you're developing. And what we're finding is the most interesting questions happen at the, intersection, at the intersections of corners of, or edges of the Rubik's Cube. That um, when two areas of study come together, that's where the really rich stuff is. Um, so we're actually about to launch a whole set of research studies around some of those big questions, including things like how do kids play differently with a physical toy than they do with its digital manifestations, whether it's on a, a computer screen or on a touch screen. Those are the kinds of questions around the edges of the rubrics cube, around the edges of the play matrix, where we think we're going to, to find really rich, rich results in, in how kids are thinking about the world around them right now. Um, just two last quick, or a couple last quick notes about how we've set up our play lab. We have a play lab in New York. We set it up to be child friendly and to, to be a place where, you know, one of the issues around wiring up kids, one of the issues just around children's research in general is it's not a comfortable situation for them a lot of the time. You're inviting them into a place where they are out of their home environment, where they may feel a little nervous. So anything you can do to create a welcoming environment. We have a whole floor of a building in New York so that when you step off the elevator, you're not in that sort of dentist's office long row of doors and wondering which one is the one that I'm going behind. But you step into a colorful, bright environment with comfortable furniture for kids, 
Lego, um, toys, you know, anything we can do to, uh, to make them comfortable. Uh, the back room for the clients have snacks. We try not to sugar up the kids before we do the research, but the clients get, get some sugar. Um, and, and then the kinds of work that we're doing with them. We often will use therapy-based um, approaches in doing research with kids. So we often will show them something, and to get their, their understanding of it, their reaction to it, we'll let them play with puppets and act out uh, scenarios in a way that a therapist might do that in order to test their understanding but also their feelings about, about it. And then we also often work with friend dyads, that it, it's a much more comfortable setting if someone can bring his, his or her best friend along to the research, and we can watch the two of them interact as well as the individual responses that they get. So I'm going to stop there. That's just a quick introduction to Play Collective and our research around psychology and psychophysiology. Terrific. Thank you very much. This is a great talk. Okay, well, I'm going to stand up because... Oh, sorry, are you supposed to... Win? Yes, you go okay, right I'm just ahead. going to do it. Okay, <laughs> right. Well, you think I'm going to give to you, but actually you're going to give to me because between you and me, this is my viva for my doctorate. So you are, you know, you, you just imagine that you're really um, testing me on this. So I'm going to give you my information and I'm going to tell you how you can observe children and how you can monitor their levels of engagement and their levels of involvement when they're two, three, four and five without using all the paraphernalia. Although at some point, I think we both love to do that, but it really will take a little while until we can do this. So this is me, my 10, 10 years of experience now I'm going to give you, and I want you to critique me. You know, it's going to be okay for you to say, well, what about that then, eh? What about this? All right, so I want you to be able to, to do that. So, should I move this on? Okay, so I'll tell you a little bit about me, very, very, very fast, so that I can get into the meat of it. Um, I started life out as a primary school teacher. I became an author very quickly of children's books, Ladybird books. And then I went on to be a child development expert, whatever that is, because I wrote lots of books about children and their development. Um, and then I became a head teacher for three years, loved that with little ones. And then I went into government to be an advisor in curriculum and early years um, work and training. And then I went to the BBC for five years and I got caught. I got caught up in this whole bubble of film and media and I thought it was amazing. It was what I really wanted to do. So I got way too much work, so I started my own company called Tomorrow's Child. And I have been developing the TESIT, which is the Tomorrow's Child, um, engagement and involvement tool, which I'm going to teach you, and I'd love you to use it or come and talk to me about it. Um, and it's built on um, a knowledge of um, Mahali Chickman sent me highs. Chick sent me highs. Chick yeah. sent me highs work, which is all about flow and engagement. And when I I began to think when I was at the BBC, to be honest with you, I looked at how producers were kind of monitoring or doing a little bit of audience research with their children, with the children as they went into schools. And I began to think, well, you know, these over-enthusiastic producers would go in and go to the children, what do you think of my TV show then? And of course the kids would go, yes, great, it's really, really good. Because children generally want to please. So how do you do that? Do you ask them loads of questions? Well, you can do. 
Um, and we still do use some questioning, but there are other ways of monitoring a child's level of um, engagement <coughs> and involvement and really do it to a much more sort of scientific uh, level. So I was doing some work with a medical doctor and we, um, we were looking at the creative moment and we, it was a, an 18-month study where we um, wrote a book and we produced a film on it and I've got a copy here for first one who, who critiques me at the end of this can have it. And, um, and we started to use um, Laver's work which is about engagement and, you, you know, you can actually see children's levels or are they engaged, are they disengaged? How do you know that? Well, we began to build something around children's physiology to look at um, in depth the way their body language is speaking. Because, I mean, as adults, we're quite good at sort of hiding how we really feel. Little ones can't do that. And at two, three, four and five, they're much more open as to how, you know, the, their preferences, their, their uh, movements. And you'll see some of those slides coming up. But it's taken me 10 years to do this. It isn't something, oh, you know, a bit of a smile, that will do. Um, and we've tested it out. We've tested it out. And we've actually helped develop... Um, quite a few TV shows that are on air right now. And the, I mean, the producers and um, people who, who actually write these TV shows really love to engage with us. And I see some of them in the audience right now. And how we've kind of measured and how we can look at the children's responses. So this is from um, Mahali's work, which is how children get to that aha moment. And that's a, the moment where they are, are like involved, they're complete, it's autotelic, timelessness. They're in a position where they are outside of themselves. And that is something that intrigued me. And when I began to think of how children are, when they watch a screen and when they engage with a narrative, they see it from a moment by moment by moment by moment process. And I began to think, okay, so we can, we can look at the narrative as a whole, but for two, three, four and five-year-olds, each moment has to be valid in itself. And as we looked at that and we had a, a scale that we would plot in terms of moment by moment, whether the child is kind of really understanding, not understanding. And, and that actually fed into our body language tool. So we had, we had this sort of triangular um, effect going on where we would look at their body language, we would look at their response to the script, moment by moment by moment. Children live in the moment. They can't... Uh, really project themselves into the into the future. Do you know what I'm talking about? Are we nearly yet there yet? They would say, wouldn't they? Because they're in the moment. They can't really take that on board. So, um, when we worked on the um, Creative Moment project, we looked at it from a parasympathetic nervous system point of view. We looked at the move, very movements that David's just been talking about, where you normally need um, some sort of apparatus to measure it. And we began to really define that tool and refine it and refine it until we had a set of behaviours that we could teach researchers. And, we, uh, and to some extent, we also teach the producers and um, content makers 
um, the tool as well. So they come along and actually take part in it, and we film the process. So this was right at the beginning of what it looked like. Um, and we would look at, for example, you know, the lips parted or the eyes widening or the direction of the feet. We've borrowed a lot from other disciplines. So my work really lies at the, uh, at the intersection of many um, discourses around media, around child development um, and around um, construction of narratives. So here we are, we have the observation, the filmed responses, the body language index that's used, the questions based on the script. So there's another layer of um, intelligence that's, that's placed upon it. Um, and of course, comprehension is really reliant upon a child's engagement and levels of interest. Without that, you're not going to have the comprehension. And remember that that comprehension has to occur moment by moment by moment. Um, and then the correlations of the answers from the body language and answers to the questions um, provides a detailed analysis um, whereupon we can have that discussion with producers. Now, another really interesting thing began to emerge whilst I was studying all of this, and that it was a real aha moment for me, and that's children's understanding of schemas. Schemas are repeatable actions. And those of you who have children may well have seen your young children repeat an action over and over and over again. For example, my particular schema that I liked when I was a child was an enveloping schema. I would like to be underneath things. And my children's, one of my children's schemas was a rotation schema, going round and round and round. Now, this has been known for about 50 years with somebody called Chris Athey. And what had never been researched was to see what happens when a child's natural inclination and affinity with schemas was placed on the screen. So we began to test out how a child would react to schemas on screen. And we had the most remarkable results. I'd love to keep you, you know, lock the door and make you see them all so that you could, you could have a look with us. But it was such an aha moment with two, three, four and five years. They are biologically wired to watch and engage with schematic moments. And those TV shows that have been really successful and one of those is Bing, and another one is Rough, Rough, Tweet and Dave, actually embrace those schemas. Now, I don't think for a moment that the content producers actually sat down and thought, well, where can we put those schemas? But because of their sort of general knowledge of children and, and wondering and thinking and creativity and spending time with children, they're naturally embedded within that narrative and within the screen. So... It's something I've begun to call IDP, which is, is immersive digital play. Because what we're seeing is that a lot of the play behaviours that are prevalent in the offline world are actually inhabiting the online world. And those particular behaviours around schemas um, are ones that are innately interesting to children. Um, and so as I go through some of these, you'll see some of the body language that we've actually witnessed and that gets the score on the, um, you know, on the, um, on the sheet that we produce. You'll notice here the, 
the, the look of fascination, the eyes widening, the, the lips parted, um, you know, absolute, you know, if there was ever a moment that a child was in the moment, this one, this one captures it. And um, over the years, I've got a, score, a, a whole store of these kind of moments where a child is ex- experiencing timelessness. And when you talk to these children afterwards and you ask them about the narrative, the comprehension, they know it all. Moments like this, where children can't help but use their bodies to express what they're thinking, what they're feeling. So this kind of pseudo-scientific approach has been beautiful, absolutely beautiful, has yielded such a result. Um, And here, the children are talking about some um, screen grabs around how they identify with characters. It's really important that a child will identify with the character. And at this particular moment, the child is saying, I am him. And it was just like, why would he think he was him? And he was thinking he was him because he was in his space. And it's this amazing thing that media can do for children. They kind of transport themselves into that narrative. And that's why it's such a creative experience for them. Now, there are other ones which you'll see as I go past. And that's not, sorry, it's a good one. Do you think, hands up if you think this child is engaged or disengaged. Hands up if you think the child is engaged. Okay, hands up if you think the child is disengaged. Absolutely right. You see, you can do it. You're a researcher. Come and work with me. That's fine. The child is disengaged because he's saying, I'm superior to this. I'm looking down my nose at this. I feel this is not actually this moment. I don't get it or I feel above it. Um, and then it cor- then you don't just take that. Obviously, you have to take the whole picture of what that child said. I mean, it just takes flipping ages and much much easier to just stick something on them really and find out but it really you know it takes ages to to sort it out because you don't want to make a guess about it you've got to really sort of apply a bit of science to it and I work at Middlesex University and so we do go through we have to go through all of these procedures around you know um, protection of children as well in consent forms by the way Um, I mean this child engaged or disengaged Totally. I mean, the tongue. They can't help it. Absolutely can't help it. And the interesting thing is, just as you're watching that child, those of you who are feeling particularly relaxed, will your, your mirror neurons are, be, are activated, so you can't help but make some of those movements, even in your head, that that child is, is, is making at that moment. Anyway, that's another whole story. This child is feeling the feelings of the character in that moment. If I had a chance, I would show you all of this, but she felt the sadness at that particular moment, engaged or disengaged. Thank you, see, you can do it. This is a a moment where a child felt, oh my gosh, this was Oscar and who, um, which has just been taken up as well. She couldn't help it. She couldn't help but feel the shame of that character in that moment. And this one here is from Rough Rough Tweet and Dave, where a child wanted to go through the creative moment (coughs) experience. And one of the things that we found, which is in my book, is that when children go through a creative moment, they go through this leap 
of understanding. They, they're, they're in that moment and then they come down and then they have to share. You know when a child's painted something and they have to go, look at this, look at this at the end? That's at the end of the creative experience. So when children have been in that moment of total engagement and involvement, they have to share it. And you can see that at that point, the child was, was sharing her experience. Um, totally fascinating. I mean, this has been my life's work and I absolutely absolutely love it. This is an example of an enclosure schema that we, we caught a child doing. Um, and this is, a, um, this is um, a connection schema, which you'll see embedded in so many very, very successful TV shows. And these are some of the shows that we've worked on. Right, ham, go, 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 <coughs> go. <laughs> and we continue to refine it. And have I got time? Bing. <laughs> Now watch the moment by moment on this. Okay, now, did you have to know the whole sequence or could you... You're a two-year-old, but you're a three-year-old, by the way. Could you get the sense of moment by moment? Yeah, a bit of nodding going on. Absolutely. It didn't rely on the whole narrative. What was it also with children, and Bing talks about the big moments in children's lives. And if you, what was the big moment that happened there? Fell over. Is that a big moment for us? Well, actually, it is, isn't it? We're old if you fall over. But that's a big moment for a child. And the secret of why Bing is so successful is it takes those unique moments to which a child cannot help but be engaged. It's, you know, it's, it's almost like, well, it was inevitable. It, it was really going to work. Um, have I got time for another one? Or are we... Yeah, up? real quick one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Humour. This is a part of Rough Rough Treatment, Dave, where we were looking at the, the humour of a child. So we used different tools to um, see how engaged a child was. And at this point, we used um, puppets. There we are. There's the producer lurking in the background. face did you when you begin to look out for it you could see the, the the moment of thought and the moment of point of decision that was on that child's face and I mean the, the really good thing about doing this kind of research with producers is in fact we took the um, the banana joke didn't you 
And that was as a result of participation with children. And here was my very last message. The rights of the child should be, and we're subscribed to the United Nations rights of children, should be their right to participate in quality media. The more children are able to participate, it becomes a more equal society because children should have a right to participate in the construction of media texts for them. The power base over adults doing TV for children that's over, that time is over. They have every opportunity, every opportunity to engage in the, um, the making of media texts for them, the better it will be for them. Amen. Terrific. So, um, a couple of thoughts, and then we're going to have some questions because I'm sure there are burning questions if, out there. If you want some brilliant examples of exactly what she's talking about, go to. Um, I do a lot of work with the International Children's TV Festival, and the research organization behind that, which has a long German name, just search online for IZI Research. And once you're in there, look for the guessing games. They go around the world, they show the same television program or clip from a television program yeah. to kids all around the world and uh, have a camera folding back on them to see their reaction and then ask experts like us who always get it wrong how the kids yeah. are going to react to it. So that's one thought. The other is the importance of being open to the kind of flow that, that you're talking yeah. about. Um, I was working with a, an app developer who found that when he was testing his app, kids' instant reaction was to, you know, there's a game where you were supposed to tap once or twice to do something, kids would take the game and go, <laughs> and, and it broke the game. And his developer said, you know, I can fix that. I can make it so it shuts down after the first tap or whatever. And he said, no, 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 if that's how kids play with it, make it a feature, not a flaw. So be open to, to how kids want to play with your, your media. Let them participate. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, can we go straight to questions? Does anyone have a question to start? Gemma? Um, I'm actually from Penguin Random House, so I look after Ladybird. Um, I was wondering whether you've thought about taking any of your research back into publishing to see how it can affect that's literature. A, that's the next stage. Are you play? borrowing anything from non-directive play therapy? Oh, I've borrowed it from <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> I've nicked it from everything you can possibly imagine. Yeah, and... and um, uh, in my bag is the, the whole literature review around play, which I'd love you to have a look at. Thank you. Yes. Hi. In either case, um, do you, are the children aware that they are on camera? And if so, do you feel that that affects the quality of the research that you get? Yes. Yes to which? <laughs> oh, um, I didn't realize how to qualify it. Well, yeah, it does. So you have to take that into account. But the thing is, once children go into the zone, as Chickman sent me highly, would say... They couldn't care less whether you had a giraffe in the room. You know, they're completely in it. So, yes, you do. You do have to do it because we set up two cameras, often two cameras, and there are people in there. But how else are you going to do it? You know, you've got to, you've, you have researchers there and you want to freeze frame it. And afterwards, I, I'm a, such a boring person. I sit through it each bit and go through each bit and see how they've reacted. So, yeah, I, I do think it does impact them. Yeah. Whenever we can, we try to set up research uh, situations that are going to be much more naturalistic yeah. to the child. We've actually done a piece of work for a broadcaster in the U.S. where we wanted to find out how families are using television together and apart uh, these days. And so we had three parts to the study. The first was a diary. 
that the parent would fill out, fairly traditional form. Mm -hmm. uh, second was text messages that would come in to the, the mother in this case a couple times a day and the mother would be asked to stop, say if anyone was watching television, if so what they were watching, who was in the room, who made the choices and all that. But the really innovative part was we hacked some digital cameras and put them on top of the television set in the living room of the family, obviously with permission. And for three days the camera took pictures every four minutes of the living room. And so we got this wonderfully rich sense over three days of how people gather and disperse, who controls the remote. I mean, I can tell you that when dad is in the room, dad controls the remote. When mom is in the room, kids control the remote. As often as, as possible, or often when the father controls the remote, the kids have gone off to a second device and are playing on the floor watching their own thing or playing a game themselves. But it's, it's a wonderful way of the family loses track that the thing is there. Um, and uh, over the course of several days, you can get the, the more rich data than you can in 20 minutes in a, in a laboratory. Thank you. The author and researcher who keeps coming up is Mihai Chikshak Mihai, more or less I said that yep, right. You got that. Um, and the name of the book is Flow, uh, if you're looking for it. Another question over there? Hi, it was a great talk. Thank you very much. Um, it's, it's, it's actually on an, an ethical tip, and I don't necessarily want to get too far down that um, rabbit hole. Oh, let's but, go. Um, I, was just, <laughs> I was just wondering um, if you felt that uh, if there was a line um, with how much you... Because obviously I understand that there's observation around observing children uh, and seeing how they're reacting. And I was wondering, kind of, as we move more into some of the neuroscience stuff, fMRI and all the other various techniques, if you ever feel that there's a line where you think, you know what, this is a locked box that the child has a right to keep locked. Um, and if, if you do think there's a line, I was just wondering where there is. I, I have no opinion either way. We, so both, not... we both totally agree. We absolutely agree that the invasiveness of, um, you know, skin testing or whatever, or even saliva testing, I've got a bit of a problem with that one as well. We, you know, where you can, you can see, re, I mean, we, I know all about this because we were going to put it into the Creative Moment project. But we just thought, no. Actually, I do think there's so much, there's such, you know, children are a canvas. You can see what's going on. You can actually see it. So in a sense, you don't really need to do that. And yeah. I think even beyond technology, it's one of the reasons why we yeah. listen to academics around, around the kinds of uh, uh, reporting that they'd have to do or, or defining that they'd have to do in advance of a study yeah. of what's ethical to do with kids. That, that, yeah. uh, uh, we really want to make sure that even if it's not wiring them up, and, and as I say, we've decided not to do that until we can be certain that we've got some sort of ethical standards at, at the very least, um, you, you want to make sure you're not intruding on their world uh, too deeply. How, how might you uh, present and chart the research that you've done in a particular study? But you can see a chart that goes along. Um, and you can see the moments where a child's totally engaged and then it comes down and then it goes up and then it goes down. And when you set that as a norm and, and then you have other measurements beside it and you've correlated with the body language, then you've got written up and screen grabs plus a film. Plus a film so that, you know, it's all very open, you know, what's going on really. And yeah. is that the way you would approach it as well? In our case, it really varies client to client. What I mean, we, we give them a playbook at the end, that, and it's what they're the questions that they're asking that we'll address, and it can be in any number of different ways. I mean, the, if you look at the tradition of television research, in particular in the U.S., and of, of uh, whether it's tracking from the animatic stage or even just 
you know, rough drawing stage, animatics, rough cut, um, people are going to want to see where the high points and low points yeah. are in their script and yeah. be able to adjust exactly. as they go. Yeah, exactly the same, yeah. Right, terrific. Um, one more question and then we'll wrap up. Over here. Hi, uh, David Heslop from CITV. Um, really interesting, uh, very good research. The, uh, all the things uh, you did were with kids who were, um, uh, for want of a better word, CBB's age. Does any of your research apply to eight-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 12-year-olds, or do you think by the time they get to that age, they're developing the adult instincts for peer yes. pressure, social group, things like that? Yes. I, it, this is very um, specific to the, to the little ones. I think as they get older, they become much more sophisticated, much more aware of their body language. And it works to a certain extent, but um, the tool, I've only, I've only really developed it for, for little ones, yeah. We're do, we, we do a good bit of testing with that older age group. I'm more often these days around games and apps than it would be around television. But uh, absolutely at that age, and we're looking for engagement with, with it. We're looking for them. The, the nice thing about it is they're better able to talk about it afterwards. So if you play with them, um, if you let them play, and then you can ask them questions afterwards. It's still, you don't want to do a focus group per se, mm -hmm. but, uh, but you can ask them richer questions when they get to that age. I do think it was one last question here. We can we can fit it in really quickly, please. Oh, hello. Just from looking at some of those videos that you showed, and you mentioned about the high points and low points in the script. A couple of times it looked like that one kid was engaged and one didn't appear to be engaged, and that was quite interesting. Tell tell us about that. Are you talking to me? Oh no, there is no. Well, or both of you, yeah. because obviously. There are, oh, you, you can maybe it, identify yes. high points and low points in scripts, yeah. but still kids react. They're Very, still individuals. Indeed. So. That's why oh, it's such a boring... Well, it's not boring to me because I love it. But, you know, you have to take the film, then you have to, you have to take their answers, and then you have to take the levels of engagement which are against the script. Do you, you with me? Am I explaining this properly? No, probably not. So you've got the observation, the annotation on the script and the film, and then you have to take it individually, then you add it all up, and then you average it. Um, thank you very much, both of you, for this. It was really, really interesting talk, um, and I'd like to particularly thank David for pinch hitting at the last minute, uh, because Simon was not able to come along. And thanks to the audience for the terrific questions. Yeah. Um, it's a great session, and uh, go get them at your Viva. Uh, <laughs>